0: From childhood, he answered. It often throws him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, I I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It is truly a delight to be here with you today. Of course, in full disclosure, I have been attending your church on a fairly regular basis for the last six months, be it ever so much like a quiet church mouse in the corner uh, for truth. Still, it's been wonderful and I'm I'm deeply grateful. Of course, I have a home church here in Michigan, uh, one where I'm actually one of the preaching pastors. But during this crazy pandemic and when everything is on Zoom, I've been often able to catch at least one of your Sabbath morning services. And I have been so blessed. It's been so sweet. And, and so inspiring. And plus, I get to see my boy, Nick, to boot. So it's really been a, a double joy and blessing for this mother. Uh, thank you so much for what you do. Last evening, uh, we began our conversation uh, around the theme of your collegiate uh, weekend, entitled, Integrating Faith in a Fragmented World. Integrating Faith in a Fragmented World. And we really had a great time, I did. Uh, And a, a great discussion on the idea of faith and how we best approach our life and the world around us within the context of our faith. And as I thought about how we might continue exploring that concept of human faith today, especially as we live in a decidedly divided world and with sometimes very little by way of a barrier between us and abject evil at times, A particular story in the gospel came to mind, one that seemed to fit the fundamental issues at hand, that being human faith and what that faith affords, but also the inevitable hurdles and sometimes self-inflicted limitations that we often probably inadvertently, for the most part, place upon ourselves and our experience with faith. And the story also provides a crystallizing and precious insight regarding Jesus and how he understood and understands human faith now and how it might best be put to good use. And so it seemed fitting to the theme of integrating faith in a fragmented world. The story is found in uh, Mark 9. I have read it. And I want to read it again just to sort of get the setting well solidified in your heads. So it unfolds with Jesus arriving on a scene already underway. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. Makes sense. What are you arguing about? He asks. And then a man in the crowd answered Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? These are sobering questions on the part of Jesus here. How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It often throws him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus says, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father explained, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Such a precious, honest, and curious little story. And it seemed to me that in the current milieu of our still raging pandemic and a fair amount of brazen evil, hatred and justice and the like, it was a story whose time had come again. It is a story about Jesus and his unique take on the use and power of our faith. And a father who, in a moment of great crisis and personal truth, had to admit that though he perceived himself to be a man of faith, he lacked the kind of faith or the amount of faith required to directly ask for the one thing he wanted more than anything else in the whole wide world. Kind of astounding. You know why, don't you? Maybe you've been there yourself. Maybe, maybe that describes how you have felt at times or even where you're at today. Because this man knows that what he really needs is a miracle. The seemingly impossible, the against all odds kind of event. And worse yet, he has set his own limits. Perhaps unknowingly, but intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, he has set his own limits on expectation. Maybe it is out of fear of disappointment. Maybe out of a lack of personal concrete evidences. Maybe just a solid dose of self-doubt or some sense of unworthiness. Or maybe just a simple shortage of faith, period. He needs a miracle, but his request is a half-hearted effort. If you can, do anything. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Bless his heart. He believes. He believes something. After all, he came looking for Jesus. But still, he is reserved and admits that he needs help with his unbelief. There are several things going on in this story that contribute to the moment. First, there are some of Jesus' disciples, who we know from preceding chapters in this very book of Mark, had already and unequivocally cast out evil spirits. They had done it. But here in chapter 9, they are seemingly powerless They are seemingly powerless against the same evil. That probably wasn't what you might call a faith booster for the poor father. But I I, I do want to be careful here and not overstep my exegetical license. I'm just saying, sometimes we help in people's faith, and sometimes we don't. Perhaps a little context will help. Mark 9 begins with the telling of the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. The story of Jesus' supernatural and divine ordination. The mountain where it takes place is awash with magnificent splendor and the glory of God's presence. Moses and Elijah, translated saints now living with God, show up, come down to meet and be with Jesus for this sacred occasion as well. They are there to offer strength and courage for the coming conflict. That would be Jesus's own conclusive summative battle against evil and all of its manifest outcomes. This time together on the mountain was a holy convocation of blessings and faith building for Jesus. And God himself is there and officiates and gives the homily. Peter, who is likely the greatest source for Mark's gospel, was there that day as well. He saw Moses and Elijah, can you imagine? And he heard the voice of God affirming Jesus as his son supremely loved and having been given all authority. Only Peter James and John went up the mountain with Jesus that day. And now Peter, through Mark, retells the whole glorious, unprecedented event in detail. But while this scene is unfolding on the mountaintop, nine of the 12 disciples wait at the bottom, ostensibly uninvited. While Jesus, Peter, James, and John revel in glory, these guys scuffle their feet in awkward self-consciousness and probably more than a tinge of envy as well. But the actual truth is this, that in the midst of all their despondency and frustration and perhaps never having felt more unchosen by God, God chooses them to a profound and godly task. A concrete demonstration, if you please, of the very thing being celebrated and confirmed on the mountain. Smack dab in the middle of self-doubt and feelings of desertion and despair, they are called upon to do the most precious and essential work of heaven. Drive out evil in the name of Jesus. They are called to integrate their faith in the midst of their own struggle and the shattered and fragmented life of this boy and his father. They are so invited. Make no mistake about this. They are so invited to be a part of Jesus's transfiguration, but they don't see it. And the fallout is, heartbreaking. Their focus, their faith, and therefore their power through Jesus has dissipated. It's gone. The lesson is painfully obvious here. The act of integrating faith in times of personal challenge and great need is not predicated on our own sense of worth or some kind of eligibility. Indeed, The fact that we even possess the ability to have faith in and of itself is a testimony to God's grace. Our faith is always grace at work. Living by faith and participating in the outreach of faith to others is not a merit-based enterprise. It is a gift of God. I asked your disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not. Ellen White says that they were so internally focused that they lost their connection with Jesus, period. We're thinking about. But what has struck me most this week as I have read through the story is the perspective of the boy's father and his understanding of his own faith. And in those few minutes, when he has the undivided attention of Jesus and can ask for anything, at that moment, when he sees Jesus, hears his voice, looks into his eyes, and knows for sure that he is right there with him, you might wonder, well, just how much faith would it take to muster up a full-blown, confident request? Frankly, I'm tempted to think that the dad is so advantaged compared to me, compared to us. His circumstances seem to have bypassed so much of what challenges my faith. I'm tempted to think that he's got so much over me. We pray to one we cannot see. One who was here, but now resides with God. This father is a zillion steps ahead of me, and so it seems. He stands there, looking at Jesus in the flesh, talking face to face and heart to heart. Somehow I think I could believe anything in that kind of situation. But then I know that God has been tangibly and extraordinarily personal with me and visibly faithful in my life. And I live, we all live, in the power of the resurrected Christ. Not so for this Father, that is yet to come. And we have all the precious documented history of Jesus' work and resounding success. And still, I wonder where faith and presumption land with each other, where miracles versus patience or obedient acceptance intersect, where private faith versus proactive public action fit in the the balance of a fallen world in my little life. The dad's struggle is much like the rest of ours. The Father is respectful. He is appropriate and even hopeful. But listen to his words carefully. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And in that moment, he expresses his hope, but plainly reserves his expectations. I won't push my luck too far. Maybe he was just a a bit rattled by the disciple debacle. Or maybe in the presence of Jesus, he was more than keenly aware of his own unworthiness, his own doubts, his misgivings. Whatever the case, Jesus calls him on it. If you can, if you can, Jesus replies, what kind of a half-baked request of God is that? If I can, everything is possible to him who believes. Everything, Jesus says. I-, I feel for the dad. I know all too well that moment of truth. But in the split second that follows, would the chance for his boy to be miraculously healed Swiftly passing by, the father exclaims in desperate reality his real truth. He needs a faith he doesn't possess. Jesus, Jesus, I, I, I do believe, but not enough. Help me with my unbelief. And there it is, the honest truth. And look what that honest truth affords. As the story goes, Jesus turned to the boy and rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Evidently, and there was a bit of a scene and a evil commotion there for a bit. But the spirit had to obey, and evil has no power against the word of God. And the spirit gave up its hold on the boy, and he lay limp on the ground. And the Bible says that Jesus took the boy by the hand, lifted him to his feet, And helped him stand. I love those words. He helped him stand. Did you know that you could ask Jesus to help you with your unbelief? And he will help you stand. Our greatest spiritual accomplishment is not so much what we believe, though it is undoubtedly precious and important but maybe facing what we don't believe is our great accomplishment. What we don't believe, what we can't believe, what we won't believe, what we are unable to allow ourselves to believe, what we are afraid to believe, what we wish we believed, what we hope someday we can honestly believe about Jesus and his power to help us stand. Oh, to pray that prayer, Jesus, help me overcome my unbelief. Of course, I I have no idea what you struggle to believe in, but there is good news here. Even in our fallen imperfect condition, we still have the impetus, what I call leftover made in his image, precious. God DNA, still wrapped around the fibers of our hearts and souls. We can believe, and we employ faith at some measure all the time in a zillion different ways. And now we know we can ask for more, more and greater faith that will help us with our unbelief. And we even have counsel on how to do it, how to get it done. Later on in the same story, the disciples ask Jesus why they were unable to cast out the demon. And he tells them straight up. It's in verse 29, same chapter. Ah, he says, this kind of situation is only resolved through prayer. Prayer. You can't really win against evil or overcome in the wild world in which we live in without prayer, without keeping a connection with God, some kind of authentic communication and solidarity with him. That is where faith is built, through prayer and our connection with God. Things clearly beyond our control, our deepest fears and hardest questions, things we can't or are unwilling to believe, help we can't even seem to muster, to ask for ourselves, convictions that don't come to our hearts naturally. And our own self-doubt, honest disappointment, frustration, blatant wrong, and downright evil. Jesus says, well, these kinds of issues are only resolved through communication with me, by staying connected to me. Calling on someone greater than yourself here. Someone smarter, wiser, more loving, more forgiving, more eternal. Prayer. And our own personal relationship with God. So if you want faith, more faith than you think you possess, if you want to address the things that you can't quite believe, if you want, if you truly want to mold whatever faith you have into the fabric of how you live in this terribly fragmented world, you start with prayer. I would recommend, uh, from my own experience in this story, that you ought to pray when you don't feel like it. Pray when you can't quite believe. Pray when you're mad or hurt or afraid. Pray when you think you already know the answer. And pray when you think you don't like what the answer might be. And pray for a change of heart and a new insight. Pray about what you believe and pray about what you don't believe, too. The truth is that faith comes quite naturally to the human race if it involves something we want or highly value. So pray about what your heart is wanting. Pray about what you should value most. It's a good prayer. Pray for a new vision of who you can be and what you may be called to do as we all wait here at the bottom of the mountain for Jesus to come back down again and get us. Our greatest fight in this crazy, messed up, fragmented, beautiful, precious world is centered around what we are not willing to ask for and what we are not willing to believe. This is our only limitation, our only limitation, according to Jesus. That's good news. Because everything is possible to those who believe. I'd like to just pray with you here as we end. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming once and living such a life of hope and faith and miracles. And we're waiting for you now. So grant us faith and give us work, heavenly work, something to do in this fragmented, wonderful world until you come and dear Jesus, Help us to believe, and help us in our unbelief too. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.